Hello and welcome to The Sower. This is episode two. Uh, I'm your host, James Patterson. I am the Associate Professor of Politics at Ave Maria University, a fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, and president of the Ciceronian Society, which is bringing you this podcast today. With me is my friend and uh, sort of spiritual colleague, uh, Rachel Ferguson. Uh, She is the co-author of a book with Marcus Witcher called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. So Rachel has quite the bio. Uh, She is the director of the Center for Free Enterprise and the assistant dean and professor of business ethics in the College of Business at Concordia University, Chicago. She is the co-author of this fine book that we are uh, reading today in an Acton uh, Institute affiliate scholar. Uh, You can find her work um, at Acton Power Blog, National Review, Christian Post, Law and Liberty. Uh, She's also a board member at the Freedom Center of Missouri, Faith Ascent Ministries, and the Love the Lou, and founding member of Gateway to Flourishing. She received her PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University in 2009, and uh, with a with a, a CV like that, it is amazing that she has time to write anything, especially the dean part. So, Rachel, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, this is an incredible book, incredible for a lot of reasons, uh, mainly. Um, that it is so thoroughly researched and uh, takes very seriously figures that are often obscure to many people uh, in even academic circles. Uh, so collecting all of them into um, such a uh, such a, a, a tightly written and pleasant to read book was really t- quite a treat for me. Uh, what I'm going to start off with is what I think is a conventional story, and I want you to explain what it gets right and what it gets wrong. So the conventional story about black liberation is that it does not occur in the marketplace, but it is from the marketplace because capitalism is the source of the ills that afflict the black community. Uh, uh, The reason that there are black people in the United States is because of the capitalist market in slaves. Uh, They were uh, exploited for their labor to achieve uh, profits for white supremacist plantation owners, and these profits were shared not only among the planter class of the South, but with the mercantile class of the Mid-Atlantic and New England states, uh, and also served as a sort of uh, economic foundation for Western expansion. Uh, And as a result, much of the treasure stored up in the United States is treasure from uh, from enslaved labor uh, and has not been returned. And many of the black Americans today do not experience the benefits of that stored up treasure, uh, which means that fundamentally black liberation uh, must be at the cost of uh, destroying the marketplace, which enslaved them in the first place. Uh, And hence, uh, you see a lot of black liberation uh, uh, discourse occurring on the left, very strongly on the left. Uh, What does this story get right and what does it get wrong? 
Well, that was very well put uh, in, in uh, presenting the view that we're disagreeing with. Um, so, gosh, there's a lot to say there. I would start with how we use the term capitalism. So actually, in the book, we don't use the term capitalism. Uh, we use the term free markets. And the reason for that is because it's true that the term can mean something broader uh, than free markets to many people. So sometimes it's used in a very sloppy way to mean something like any uh, any activity in which we're pursuing profit, but that that would mean that there's always been capitalism, right? I mean, there's always been activities that pursue profit, but usually uh, we think of capitalism as referring to something, oh, that maybe arose uh, about a hundred years, maybe fifty years prior to the Industrial Revolution, and uh, and really exploded during that period. And so, if we just say it's a profit pursuing activity then, uh, you know, we're not capturing anything unique about modern life. Um, and also, people can often associate with capitalism activities that um, are anti-free market. For instance, cronyism, right? So it's, it's very common in capitalist economies that you have established interests who use their connection to the state in order to um, entrench themselves, right? Dig their heels in and stop innovation and startups and anything that would disrupt their own established interests. Uh, but of course, that would not be capitalism in the sense of an innovative system based on private property and voluntary exchange, uh, which is really what we're trying to get at. So in order to avoid the confusion, we actually just didn't use the term. We used the term free markets, but we did take on this whole debate, um, really a debate between historians and economists over the way we think about the institution of slavery. So in chapter two, we just jump right into that debate, specifically as it's laid out in the 1619 Project, because you have this uh, this article that sort of connects the way that Southern planters operated with uh, modern corporate life. Um, we found that to be really absurd, and uh, there's a number of reasons why. Um, but the first reason is that, you know, the, the Southern planter culture was very anti-capitalist, right? They saw capitalism as really the northern industrial cold economic nexus, you know, cash nexus. And uh, and they saw themselves very much as, a, you know, a more aristocratic kind of society in which uh, the planter is the pater familias, and he's caring for uh, those who are enslaved on his plantation. He's supporting uh, a certain way of life, um, but by no means trying to maximize efficiency necessarily, right? He's trying to make enough to keep that way of life going, um, but that's it. And so it was a very strange connection that this article made. So once you, and this is the Matthew Desmond article, by the way, in the 1619 Project. So once you really dig in, what you find is that this whole new historians of capitalism kind of movement is based on really quite a lot of academic uh, malfeasance, we might say. So for instance, uh, Matthew Desmond is drawing ad on Edward Baptist, uh, who wrote the book, The Half Has Never Been Told. And in this book, he draws on some data to claim that the enslaved, uh, uh, sorry, that the uh, cotton industry is making up 50% of the American economy, 50%. And of course, it turns out that the economists whose data he's drawing on 
totally disagree with this. Actually, they think he just makes a math mistake. He's literally a decimal point off. It's 5%. Uh, the cotton industry is contributing about 5%. That's significant, but it's obviously not half, uh, right? And so why does that matter? It sounds like it's something that's kind of in the weeds. It's a math debate between historians and economists. Uh, well, actually, it matters a lot because what it shows is that um, – it, it really uh, affirms what the um, what the free market economists have been claiming all along. That's people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill who are saying, look, slavery is not only wrong morally because, as Adam Smith put it, the labor that one owns in oneself is the most sacred and inviolable because it's the basis of every other kind of property. Right. And so for Smith, it's morally unacceptable, but it's also economically foolish it's true that some people will gain profits through slavery, but that's through violent extraction. It's sort of like the way pirates gain profits, right? Through violent extraction and not through innovation. It's not, it's not through a system in which people are able to move. They're able to go where their labor is most needed. They're able to develop their human capital. They're able to learn. Uh, they're able to invent and contribute because they have property rights. They have rights in themselves. No, in fact, in a slave system, people are not allowed to do any of those things. And therefore, we are all going to miss out on what their contributions would be. So planters could get very rich, although they got no richer than northern industrialists, but the South did not. Um, it was a big economy uh, worldwide, but we're comparing it to what it could have been if it had had free labor. And of course, there are many ways in which it was held back by the institution of slavery. So for instance, the uh, white wages, uh, poor white people's wages were bid down. And so you had a very... Uh, you know, a few rich and many poor kind of system in the South where you had much greater middle class in the North. And so uh, that ended up discouraging um, population, right? A lot of people emigrated to the North. And so you had a scattered population. Uh, people weren't particularly interested in investing in infrastructure, et cetera. And so, and, and then of course, after emancipation, you find suddenly, right, the South needs to add some industry and it needs to build some roads and it needs to do some things right that it never was doing under the system of slavery because it didn't need to. It was, uh, the South was employing really old fashioned techniques because they had all this free human labor. And so they didn't have to be clever about the way they did things. So long after people were using steam power, you had mines in the South that still had, uh, you know, incarcerated men men handing pails of water down a line to each other. I mean, it was absolutely inefficient. And so what we see is that uh, the new historians of capitalism are sort of seeing this world in which our capitalist blessings really are based on exploitation. And what we're saying is, yes, there was certainly some exploitation in our history, but that is not the source of our uh, of our wealth, right? The source of our wealth is, is innovation. And you get innovation when you have private property, voluntary exchange, free freedom of movement, equal protection of the rule of law. And so we suffer as an economy, as a whole economy, even if a few people get rich, the most suffer uh, under any sort of exploitative system and, uh, and, and the majority benefit when you have a system that is really a system of liberal law in which all enjoy the equal protection of the law. Wow. That's, that was fantastic. And, uh, my, um, uh, I, I was opening this book to start reading, and I was surprised that um, much of the uh, uh, much of the discussion uh, is of classical liberalism, and that was a bit of a uh, that was a bit of a, a shock to me, considering I thought we would get um, a discussion 
first of race, uh, but race only comes in after you've sort of set up what classical liberalism uh, is and why it's relevant to this question of, of black liberation through the marketplace. What is it about classical liberalism that you see as so important for understanding the way of taking people who are in difficult circumstances, to say the least, uh, and having them flourish in a way that you wish for them uh, in the future? Yeah, that's great. And and it is something that uh, is perhaps a little unique about our book. It's sort of the point of the book is, is that, you know, Marcus and I are both classical liberals. And we saw that classical liberalism has so much insight on questions of race and discrimination, but that we are not necessarily associated with having a lot of insight on race and discrimination, uh, largely because it just hadn't, the insights hadn't ever been collected together into one place. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to grab that, you know, Becker on discrimination and Robert Higgs on post-Reconstruction Black America and, you know, Rose Wilder Lane at the Philadelphia Courier, you know, all of these great classical liberal thinkers who really fought hard for the rights of black Americans and, and bring their insights together into one place. And so why do we think classical liberalism has a special insight here, especially since, as you said, you know, the, the usual kind of academic assumption goes in the opposite direction, right? It's that capitalism is exploitative and so forth. And so I think one way to go at this is just, and maybe this is this is passe for some of our listeners, but maybe for others it's new, is just to look at this idea of the great enrichment. And so we, we have these little lessons in classical liberalism in the book, and one of them is on the great enrichment, where we really look at the fact that in the last 200 years, 200 now maybe in 50 years or so, um, what we've seen is an explosion of wealth that is just like nothing ever, ever seen on the face of the planet. I mean, even dreamed of. It's, it's unbelievable. And when I say an explosion of wealth, I'm not talking about Bill Gates here, okay? I'm not talking about Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, you have a few astronomically wealthy people who have invented something that practically everyone on the planet is using, right? And which is why they're very wealthy. But I'm talking about regular people. And this goes all the way back to the beginnings of the classical liberal tradition. If you look at people like Adam Smith, if you look at our founders, they're saying similar things. They're saying it's the plight of regular people that's changing. That's what's outstanding. That's what's fantastic about the spread of global markets is that you're seeing day laborers have their everyday life transformed uh, in which their children no longer have to work. They can go to school, right? You can develop wonderful scientific inventions, but if you can't get them anywhere, it doesn't matter, right? But if you have wonderful distribution networks, you can get antibiotics to the kids, the sick kids who need them, right? So I'm not talking about yachts you know, or Lamborghinis. I'm talking about regular people's lives being improved through things like, you know, sewer systems, right? And medical care and um, dental work, you know, the rise of making those sorts of luxuries a regular good in people's lives, uh, extending their life expectancy, uh, raising, um, or I should say, sorry, lowering the maternal mortality rate, the infant mortality rate. And this is now happening 
all over the world. So we're seeing this in the Asian tigers, even Africa, who in 2005, The Economist magazine had, you know, the hopeless continent was the title on the cover uh, showing Africa. We're now seeing huge leaps forward, finally, in income and so forth. Why? Because, of course, Africa struggles because of high levels of political corruption. But if you can get some level of trust, if you can get some level of reliable law going in in a place, the people there want to work with one another. They want to be innovative. They want to start businesses. They want to make deals. What they need is a reliable court system and a reliable political system such that they can trust that when they make a deal with one another, uh, it will be defended if some, should something go wrong. And so there's so many places that have suffered for so long because really the political class could, you know, could get rich out of straight violent extraction of others, uh, but you couldn't have regular people really working with one another in a productive way because of the lack of liberal law. And so what we're saying as classical liberals is you really see just an explosion of, and, and not it's not the wealth, it's the, it's the creativity, right? It's the human genius that's unleashed. It's the camaraderie, it's the cooperation. So we often think of economics in terms of competition because, of course, competition does push us to be more innovative and to raise quality. But most of your economic life is a matter of cooperation, right? It's a matter of who you're going to work with, who's who you're going to get to have investors, who you're going to hire, who you're going to use as distributors, how you're going to attract your consumers. It's all cooperation. The, 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 the competition happens as kind of a byproduct, right? But the thing you're actually doing is a cooperative endeavor. And so we see a classical liberal system as incredibly productive, as unleashing really human capacity. Uh, and, and we see that as being grounded basically in the idea of freedom, right? Freedom that is unleashed by having a reliable infrastructure of law. And so because you can see that all over the global market, African-Americans wouldn't be some sort of bizarre exception, right? They, they, they would be just like uh, people everywhere you go, right? They would be people who want to get in on the benefits of the market. And so why did things go wrong? They went wrong because throughout American history, African-Americans were systematically excluded from that infrastructure of law. Their private property rights were not honored, particularly in their own body, but also in their possessions. Their freedom of contract was not honored, and they were not equally protected by the rule of law. So of course, they were not able to make the same kinds of economic uh, advancements as the rest of the population, and insofar as we want to include uh, everyone in this wonderful system of, uh, of innovation and wealth, we need to make sure that everyone has those protections of liberal law. Uh, uh, so the... Um Oh, this is uh, this is a great lead-in to something that I was going to ask next, uh, which is that um, we uh, we might hear some of the stories uh, from the the years after Reconstruction or during Reconstruction, like the race riots in New Orleans, the formation of the Klan under uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and then the ensuing uh, uh, terrorizing of black populations. Uh, but we often uh, don't hear part of the story that you tell, which is that a significant amount of the antagonism 
towards black Americans was based around the successful formation of enterprises that uh, black Americans had begun uh, as a result of the near, like the almost instantaneous uh, education uh, efforts that took place uh, through, uh, in some cases, uh, Southern uh, state allocations, but often the form of philanthropy, such as through the the John Slater Fund. I'm not sure if you talk about them there. That's that's from my own research. Uh, uh, and uh, the result was uh, that th- there was no real lag uh, after uh, after there was a sort of basic services in place from the starting of these enterprises to their success. However, you have like the demolition of things like Black Wall Street and the implementation of basically white terrorism in the form of of lynchings and and the like. So uh, this is a bit grim, but I still think it would be important for us to talk about uh, what were the efforts to stymie black liberation through the marketplace in the years after um, the Civil War. Yeah, this is really important. And, you know, one way to describe what we're doing here is as an act of transitional justice, which is one of the solutions that we discuss in the book. Um, one of the important things about transitional justice, which is a, uh, a an idea that arose in situation that has arisen in situations of sort of serious humanitarian crisis, society wide humanitarian crisis and something like an apartheid system would count there. Um, and, and one of the things we need to do is what we would call institutional memory, right? We need to know what happened. We need to um, build uh, a, a memoriam, you know, to, to what was done. And, and that's part of doing justice to our history, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so we spent an entire chapter actually talking about um, some of these, just just the terrible backlash against black freedom that you see both in the South and in the North in, in, in certain ways. Um, and so j- just to start, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, black Americans after emancipation are absolutely after it. I mean, they want property. They want farms. They want to learn how to read. They're good Protestants by this point already, right? You've got a flourishing black church. So they want to learn to read the Bible. They're starting schools. They're starting networks. They're starting business leagues. It's just incredible. I mean, Frederick Douglass was actually stunned. There's a statement by him about 15 years out from emancipation where he says, look at what we've already done. This is amazing. And so it's it's really true. But of course, there's all sorts of envy. And one of the things that I discuss in the book is that, you know, the one vice that's really incompatible with a market economy is envy. Uh, a market economy relies on the idea that we, when I do better, you do better, right? In other words, when I'm uh, starting a new business, that's good for you. I'm going to make you a great product. I'm going to make something cheaper or more efficient for you, right? Uh, in general, we're, we're benefiting one another. It's exchange for mutual advantage. Um, and, but when you get into envy, envy is such a destructive vice because it's not just jealousy. It's not just that I want what you have. It's that I have to be above you and you have to be below. I have to destroy what you have. And so it's highly incompatible with the market economy. But because of the racializing of slavery in the history of the United States, you have this terrible tension, uh, racial tension, that really makes envy, uh, white envy of black people, unavoidable. And so uh, initially, you know, we talk about this comes from the wonderful book Competition and Coercion by Robert Higgs. We talk about the fact that, you know, black people uh, are still not really having great rights of citizenship in the South, but they do have the right to leave. And that voting with your feet is so powerful. 
they, they say, you know, we're going to move from the lower south to the upper south, or I'm going to leave your farm and go to the other guy's farm. And what that means is that they can bid up their wages, or in this case, their shares uh, in, in their sharecropping system. And so they were able to bid up their shares. White people did try to create cartels in which they agreed together not to hire one another's workers. Of course, these cartels did not work because cartels are inherently unstable, as as uh, Econ 101 can tell you. Uh, there's always a temptation to, to move away from that. Um, and so you, you saw black wealth actually expand at three times the rate of white wealth uh, in the later 19th century. So you are seeing some catching up going on, even though, of course, black Americans are starting from a very low starting point. Um, we can go on and look at convict leasing, you know, a, a case in which black men are just criminalized, uh, really made up crimes like vagrancy or turning minor misdemeanors into felonies, all sorts of excuses to criminalize black men who are then, you know, quote unquote, rented out to mines and farms and treated so badly, really worse than they were treated under slavery because they weren't owned, they weren't seen as an investment, and therefore they were just killed in many cases, worked so hard that if uh, sickness came through the camp, huge percentages of the camp would simply die. So it was just absolutely an outrageous humanitarian violation, the system of convict leasing. And of course, we can go on. Many people are very aware of the thousands of lynchings that occurred, which was a terrorist kind of uh, strategy and white people who tried to help black people were also lynched in many cases, uh, thousands of cases actually. But what many people don't know about is, you know, it, uh, the number of just massacres that occurred, oftentimes because a black community was doing well economically. And so, of course, the classic case is Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921, where you have a black Wall Street, you have a really, really um, you know, vibrant black community with a lot of wealth. They're actually doing a little better than their white neighbors in some case in, in Greenwood, which was the black part of town. Um, and and uh, as soon as something set it off, you know, apparently a guy ran into a girl in an elevator, you know, black guy ran into a white girl. We don't know what really happened, you know, maybe nothing, maybe something, but the whole thing just lit a fire uh, to the envy of the white community, and they absolutely destroyed that community in three days. There are several of these types of massacres, actually uh, more than a dozen, uh, that, that occurred um, particularly around that time period in American history. And so, uh, and you mentioned other things, right, the rise of the KKK and so forth. And so you absolutely do have these attempts to block in every way the uh, the economic growth of the black community and and the black community is pulling itself up by its bootstraps. I mean that's the frustrating part, right? Is is they're forming their own mutual aid societies. They're forming the the National Negro Business League. I mean they are pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. They're pulling together as a black economic community, creating a group economy, and really doing incredible things. We we have another chapter on some of the entrepreneurs like Madam C J Walker and John H Johnson and T R M Howard. Are just amazing stories that both were, um, you know, great accomplishments, accomplishments in business, but also um, just incredible philanthropists, you know, working for black political freedom as well. And of course, the role of Booker T. Washington, 
All of that is so important. And so you just have to do justice. You just have to tell the truth that in many cases, you know, the American dream was being pursued by black Americans, but they were simply stopped in their tracks by actual violence. And in many cases, violence in which the police and the government were involved. Um, rather than protecting them, they were actually actively involved in some of this violence. And so, um, you know, we have to memorialize those things and we have to tell the truth about, uh, you know, for, for to honor the survivors. There was a, a pretty serious disagreement that emerged by the end of the 19th century between figures like uh, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, and it was over this particular issue. On the one hand, Washington had written this incredible, uh, 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 well-selling text uh, called Up From Slavery, and it was a similar story to the one that you're telling here, this idea that this man was able to achieve uh, financial security uh, and education and become an upstanding citizen uh, by dint of his uh, own initiative and hard work. And he gave uh, at Atlanta in 1896 the, uh, the Atlanta Exposition Address in which he told um, essentially Southern uh, industrialists to employ black Americans because they would be better uh, uh, laborers. And he told black Americans... Uh, to focus on industrial education. And this really upset another side of, of, black, and, uh, of, of black discourse uh, led by Du Bois that thought that industrial education uh, and pursuing wealth and property was not going to work because wherever there was wealth and property held by black Americans, Violence was used to take it from them. White violence was used to take it from them. So the energies of uh, black leaders should not be on self-help, industrial training and wealth, but rather on civil rights and protections from violence. And so, and, and finally, uh, a more traditional liberal arts education that would train people for the higher things. Uh, and also shape their ability to make arguments for civil rights. And there's this impasse between Washington and Du Bois that becomes uh, the subject uh, today still of great interest. Um, so in a way, I think people tend to lean towards Du Bois uh, because it appears in the text that, you know, from Souls of Black Folk, uh, in which Du Bois makes this argument, uh, seem, uh, seems to imply that Washington was more or less uh, shrugging at the problems of discrimination and bigotry. Uh, do you sympathize with this position or do you think Washington maybe got a raw deal? Yeah, so we argue in the book that Washington got a raw deal, but we also argue that this is really a false dichotomy. And I think that's the most important thing. Oftentimes when, you know, when something is set up as though there's a, a black and white, uh, right, it's usually maybe both sides are, are not quite right. Um, and, and not only do we think it's a false dichotomy in idea, but we think we can show this through history. 
So just to give you an example, I mean, obviously, Du Bois and Washington are in very different circumstances, right? Washington is in the deep south running Tuskegee. He's getting a lot of help from white donors, but there's still not comfort with white and black race mixing at this time in the south. And so he's got to tread lightly in order to make progress for black southerners. Uh, and uh, Du Bois is in the North. He's in a very, very different uh, situation. Um, but the truth is, is that Du Bois's uh, picture that he paints of Washington is really false. Washington is using his practical reason to deal with a, a much more delicate situation in the South. But the truth is, is that he's secretly funding uh, many efforts to gain political rights, including court cases, including one of Du Bois's court cases, uh, I believe it had to do with the uh, Pullman Car Company. And so uh, Du Bois knew full well that Washington was very interested in black political rights, but couldn't couldn't wave that flag as publicly as Du Bois could. He had to be more surreptitious in his efforts. But it's also true that the building of the uh, black middle and upper class that Booker T. Washington accomplished through the National Negro Business League, through the Tuskegee Institute, um, coming out of Hampton Institute where property ownership was so heavily emphasized that the state of Virginia had the highest black property rates in the country. Um, what you actually see is a group of people emerging who have the wealth and power and influence to fund and support the civil rights movement as it develops over time, okay? So it's people like Madam C.J. Walker, the great uh, hair care millionaire uh, who lived next door to Rockefeller, okay? She she was so incredibly successful, it's almost unbelievable. And I, th I believe she was the first uh, female millionaire at all, uh, besides being the first black female millionaire. And she, um, you know, she, was, she gave the NAACP the biggest gift they'd ever received, uh, quite early on. You know, it's people like John H. Johnson, who's running Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine, the great publishing magnate, who decides to publish the pictures of Emmett Till, right? He says it was the hardest decision he ever made, but he made it. And this was a turning point in the civil rights movement. You know, it's people like T.R.M. Howard, who are starting black hospitals, um, who are able to protect the family of Emmett Till, and, and much earlier on, really hold the first uh, organizing meetings of the civil rights movement, uh, well-armed, by the way, T.R.M. Howard was a big uh, fan of uh, his guns. Uh, that was a very important part of the story, too. And so what's the point? The point is, is that it's a ridiculous false dichotomy to say either I'm going to uh, look at um, advancement in the market, or I'm going to pay attention to my civil rights. No, of course, you're not going to have a successful civil rights movement if you have no money and no uh, networks and no uh, clout, right, in, in the market. And so uh, we really see that as a false dichotomy. We think Washington got a raw deal. There's a great book by uh, Norrell, uh, called Up From History, which really defends Washington uh, from the accommodationist accusation and shows that he was, uh, you know, he was simply dealing with the situation he was in, but he was by no means truly an accommodationist. He was someone who wanted uh, black freedom, political freedom, as well as uh, economic freedom, but he just knew that you needed one in order to eventually get the other. So as a, a Ciceronian Society podcast, I'd be, um, uh, I'd, I'd be negligent if I didn't mention something about the black church 
the black church is one of the, if not the most important civil society organization for promoting black liberation, both at the political and at the economic level. Um, But there are also other civic associations that you've mentioned, and I wanted to make sure that we gave some time not just to talk about the black church, but also the black press, uh, which uh, you spend um, a really fascinating amount of time talking about, uh, especially some figures who I'd never even heard of. Um, So maybe uh, pick out one of the more obscure figures that deserves a little bit of uh, showmanship, uh, a little bit of razzle-dazzle, a little bit more attention. Yeah, so this was really one of the most um, rewarding uh, parts of my research, especially for me. I'm a a practicing Christian, and it was wonderful uh, to be able to really do a deep dive into the black church and understand the way that it developed um, under slavery in a situation in which it was not that slaves accepted the religion of their masters, but rather that they were they were converted by, you know, sort of evangelical tent meeting, you know, kind of revivalist preachers. And they often took the gospel really back to one another on the plantation and they rejected the gospel. This is the white man's religion. The term white man's religion actually refers not to Christianity, but to the gospel of the uh, plantation missionaries who really only talked about obedience to masters and not stealing and things like that, but really didn't talk about Jesus Christ. And so um, the slaves really understood that. They understood that they were hearing a false gospel and they, that they really already had the true gospel and often met in secret in order to worship on their own and were actually were pretty deeply persecuted in many cases for doing so. And so the black church is something that is truly black. It's something that came out of uh, and was developed through Black America and became what you might call the cultural womb of Black America. So out of it, you know, that's this is the one place in which Black leadership is really honored and there's some Black privacy, you might say, in an arena in which whites were not really involved and so they couldn't control it uh, even when they tried. And so um, what you see is that all of the efforts, the political efforts, the, the literacy efforts, the educational efforts, the business efforts, uh, really all flow out of uh, the black church. This is where the, all the networking is done. The black church carries a lot more than maybe it, maybe the white church does for white people. It's it's a much more complex kind of phenomenon. And so as time goes on, you see uh, black Americans uh, embracing things like um, fraternal societies, right? So they create the black elks, for instance, and they actually sue to be able to have the name, the black elks. It's an important part of, uh, the development of kind of the team of lawyers that ends up becoming important to the NAACP. And in many of these fraternal associations, you have something like a rudimentary form of insurance, uh, not in the sense that people are pulling their risk, but in the sense that um, if you're a member and you pay your dues, you actually are covered if you, for instance, get sick and you can't work for a period of time, or if you if you die and your widow uh, needs money for, for a funeral or needs a little help to get on her feet. Um, these sorts of organizations did, did that. And they also served as, uh, you know, as business networks, right, where people could give each other no interest loans if they felt that, you know, somebody really had a lot of potential and they, they knew them, they knew them face to face. And so it's a good example of a way in which um, actually we can criticize a phenomenon we call government crowd out, 
right? Government crowd out is when the state takes over something that civil society is doing, uh, like sort of the social insurance system. When the state takes over the main thing that that, that system is doing, uh, like social security did, for instance, it also it also gets rid of all of the secondary effects, right? It gets rid of all of the the networking, the community, the um, cooperation that is organically arising out of these civil thick civil society institutions, and so that's a real loss. You know, there's still actually greater uh, black involvement in fraternal associations uh, than than white. It's still very popular, but it's nothing like it was, right? You had something like half of black American males involved in a fraternal association at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's it's nowhere at that level today, which is really too bad. You know, these are these are uh, systems that are incredibly healthy, um, good for families, good for communities, good for business development, um, good for political advancement, etc. And so we really want to draw the reader's attention as a main sort of spoke of classical liberal thought to the idea of the thick civil society institution. And we see that in the mutual aid societies, the fraternal associations, um, uh, the, the black church, of course, but also the huge network of HBCUs and other forms of black education, uh, et cetera. I mean, it's really pretty stunning. And, and of course, the, the business leagues as well. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting thing to, to draw some attention to and, and show people that there's, there's this organic, just, just um, exciting, moving, uh, you know, kind of system going on in the black community. And we think it gets short shrift. You know, when, when you celebrate Black History Month, often what you're hearing about is just politics. You're only hearing about Martin Luther King Jr. You know, you're only hearing about the legal um, accomplishments. And we think that's too bad. We want to hear about the business accomplishments. We want to hear about the church. We want to hear about the civil society accomplishments. Those are things that people aren't aware of. They can be a little harder to track because they're decentralized, right? And so you want to tell all of these wonderful stories, some of them very local in nature, and uh, and and start getting our, our small towns and our HBCUs to tell these stories of these great accomplishments that helped so many individuals and, and neighborhoods to flourish. It's really sad uh, that the uh, the more local uh, figures uh, are forgotten in, in a lot of these stories. I'm just um, it occurs to me that uh, uh, that there was a chicken place uh, in uh, Houston run by um, uh, a good Knight of Columbus. Uh, let me see if I can find... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Percy Frenchy uh, Crusoe Jr., uh, who was a black businessman who was uh, from uh, Louisiana. Um, and I'm, of course, familiar with Frenchy's Chicken because I went to the University of Houston, and there's one right across the street from the campus. Uh, he became uh, quite wealthy and contributed to a tremendous amount of um, of local charities. And notice, I mean, even I, sort of familiar with this, I had to look him back up because I'd forgotten his name. And these are people that we should all be aware of, these incredible entrepreneurs and uh, uh, philanthropic figures, as well as people who just engage in ordinary uh, social activity. Uh, you know, one of the problems we often run into is this need to celebrate these sort of world historical figures. They come along very rarely, and that's not really a standard that most people are going to meet. Uh, and it would be easier if we could just maybe, you know, try to be Frenchy 
uh, <laughs> and, and try to establish successful businesses from which people can profit both uh, as consumers, which, by the way, if you're ever in Houston, you need to go to the original. I mean, they're all good, but the original Frenchies. Um, and, uh, it, you know, th- some people actually may know about Frenchies from Beyonce, I should mention, because she talks about him, that her house was originally only a few miles away. Um, uh, so this is uh, uh, quite a tangent, but I, I just I, I wanted to make sure that people understand that um, you may live in a place already where there is a significant uh, figure who might deserve some interest. And if no one is writing about uh, an important black local figure, maybe that's your calling. Maybe that's time, uh, something for you to investigate and uh, to put in a local newspaper or even uh, in a more nationally distributed uh, paper. Uh, because uh, as this book, uh, Black Liberation to the Marketplace, uh, has illustrated, there are many, many of these figures who deserve attention. So uh, just as a last question, um, what do you think this book is doing for us today? What do you think uh, uh, would be the impact you would like it to have? And, uh, and tell me a little bit about what you think about the current conditions of Black Liberation through the Marketplace. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest goals of the book is to really be anti-tribal. Um, one of the benefits of being a classical liberal, I guess I could say, is that I've never fit in. You know, I, I, you're not one party or the other, you know. And uh, and it helps you to be free in some sense from kind of a stultifying bundling of ideas together that don't necessarily need to go together. And so we talk about the process of unbundling at the beginning of the book, um, take issues one at a time, consider them one at a time, just because one is associated. You know, I, I think of, you know, your, your viewpoint on abortion, your viewpoint on Afghanistan, you know, your viewpoint on the environment. Why in the world would I think that I should know what you think about all of these because I know what you think about one of them? It's not obvious why I should know that, right? But, but party platforms kind of uh, develop and they um, send us to our, our respective corners, one might say. And so one of the great goals of the book is to get people to unbundle uh, various issues from one another and begin to think about them independently and uh, and particularly to maybe mash some things together that aren't generally associated. And so, or maybe I should say they aren't associated in the majority culture. So for instance, at the moment, the majority culture uh, as you have very well put together at the beginning of the episode, you you don't associate markets with black liberation. But the truth is, is that that's not really true in black culture. Black American culture is highly entrepreneurial. It's highly celebratory of uh, market accomplishments. Um, d- don't let don't let you know a, a few academics who are very loud uh, eat up all the you know suck all the air out of the room right or eat up all the attention. They're not necessarily particularly representative representative of the regular black population in the United States, which is deeply American, deeply patriotic. Um, you know, there, just to go off on a slight tangent, there was a a funny outcome for some uh, researchers that were looking at at Christian nationalism, and so they had this. And I'm not I'm not saying that their their uh, polling questions were very good, but they had certain polling questions that they were asking, and they were stunned to find that uh, the black that black Christians were coming out as highly Christian nationalists according to their polling. Now I don't think that black Christians are Christian nationalists. I think that black people are just very patriotic, and so it was coming out that way because of the way that their polling questions were asked, and it just goes 
goes to show that the way that we sort of stereotype, uh, particularly in academia, uh, various political viewpoints doesn't really line up with the reality, the everyday reality for black Americans who are much more complicated uh, than sort of the majority culture categories would have you expect. And so, yeah, a big part of this is just to get people to sort of think about things independently from uh, the cultural assumptions that we might bring to them and be able to um, mix together certain positions that we might associate with left or right or Republican or Democrat and realize that uh, taken one at a time, you know, you might actually have what looks like a grab bag, but isn't because it's really flowing from this celebration of human freedom. And uh, once you come at it from that perspective, and it's really a liberty-oriented perspective, you see that um, the the lament, for instance, for the terrible um, oppressive practices of our history can go right along with this celebration of black uh, culture and market and political accomplishments. Uh, and those two things can go together in a, in a, in a perfectly coalescent kind of way. Yeah, that uh, that story about the uh, Christian nationalism uh, survey reminds me of a, a great, <laughs> great story. I mean, it's great for me. I don't know if other people are going to find it funny, but uh, when a uh, when a person uh, is conducting a survey in person and uh, comes up with the results. Uh, sees that they don't confirm the hypothesis, and he comes out of the uh, the back room after tabulating them and addresses all of the uh, the the people he surveyed, saying, "No, no, you got it all wrong. You got to take it again." And this is the kind of nonsense uh, that uh, often um, uh, gets exploded when you do good uh, uh, when you do good empirical work. You discover that um, the thing that you thought was a problem. Uh, actually can manifest in very productive ways, such as in black patriotism in the churches. Um, so uh, what a wonderful uh, what a wonderful thing to end on. And I just want to thank you so much for writing this book and for uh, giving us your time to talk about it. Um, the Again, the name of the book is Black Liberation to the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America, uh, not just written by Rachel Ferguson, but uh, her co-author Marcus Witcher. Um, so you have been listening to the Ciceronian Society podcast. Uh, uh, would you like to say goodbye, Rachel? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And I just want to give a huge shout out to the Ciceronian Society because I had the time of my life at, uh, at the conference recently, and I'm so excited to go next year. There is a, a really special spirit there. And so I hope that uh, some of our audience will join us. And we don't want them to miss a thing. Thank you so much, Rachel. 